0: One day we will stand before the great I am, and today is the only day we have to be ready. The only day we have to be sure, and that's what we'll be talking about today. It's great to see you. Next week will be Labor Day. It'll be nuts out here next week. We kind of like it this way, kind of like it a little quieter, calmer. When we come out next week, there'll be people everywhere. I'm glad we have the extra space for the folk that'll be here next week, but so glad to be here with you today to worship. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of this day and the opportunity to worship you, to sing to the great I am to be able to offer you the praise you alone deserve. Father, help us to live in a lifestyle of praise, a lifestyle of readiness, a lifestyle of preparation, a lifestyle that knows the best way to live on earth is to live for heaven. Show us what that means. Show us how that works. Make that to be real in me and us, I pray. Speak to us from your word now to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, yesterday I was watching the Tour Championship on television, the final of the FedEx Cup and all that sort of thing. Something happened I've never seen before happen at a PGA tournament. Yeah. They're playing at Eastlake. I've actually played Eastlake back in a previous life on the east side of Atlanta. It's a beautiful golf course back when I could kind of play golf a little bit. I played military golf left, right, left, right, left, right, you know. But anyway, be that, be that as it may, someone told me I play golf spelled backwards, which is flog. You know, golf spelled backwards, but anyway, that's free. You didn't pay for that. So yeah, be that as it may. So anyway, the good guys are out here, and it's the finals of the FedEx, and they had to postpone the tournament. They started again at 8 this morning to try to finish the third round and the fourth round because of lightning strikes. One of them struck this tree. They'd already called the tournament. The players were in, and the spectators were trying to get off the course. When lightning struck this tree, this tree exploded, and it injured six people. Had to send some of them to the hospital. Yeah, making you realize we live in a fallen world, don't we? And then I was thinking about an article I saw in the New York Times this week. This is your devotional thought for the day. If the Yellowstone supervolcano were to erupt, it would blanket that much in volcanic ash. You know that old faithful at Yellowstone and that volcano there? It's actually what they call a supervolcano. It's been a long time since it's erupted. They don't think it's going to happen today, but if it erupted... That's what it would do. It would create an ash cloud, the New York Times reports, that would knock out all communications. It would create such a blanket as to drop temperatures. It would shut down rain, and it would devastate farming. In fact, one of the authorities said that if that were to happen, it would be the greatest catastrophe since the dawn of civilization. Now, aren't you glad you came to chapel today, huh? Yeah, continuing with this rather morbid theme, there was a meteor that passed the earth last week, came by, I think it was on Friday. Had it struck the earth, it'd be big enough to kill the city. They call it a city killer. It didn't get real close to us. It was within six earth diameters. But what made it newsworthy is the astronomers didn't know it was out there till it was already gone. They didn't see it coming. I don't know what we would have done if they had seen it coming, but nonetheless, they didn't know it was there till it was already past there, making you wonder what else is out there we don't know about. Or you can get closer to Earth. You've seen all these shark attacks in the news. I read that shark attacks have doubled in major metropolitan areas in the last 20 years, and more happen in the U.S. than any place else. Or just to continue the theme even one more time, a uh, young lady, a teenager from New Zealand, visited Disneyland last week went to several other uh, popular tourist attractions. Then they found out she had measles, and she was infectious. And now hundreds of people are having to be tested for measles. Yeah. Now you're really glad you came to church today, aren't you? Hope none of you have measles. I don't. I can promise you that. All those stories put together kind of make a point, I think, which is something you kind of know anyway, but that is that we are fallen people on a fallen planet, Today's promise is all we have. Tomorrow's promise to nobody. We don't have another day guaranteed before the Lord comes back or we go. That's just the way this world really works. Well, here's the good side of that living for heaven, living for eternity, living every day ready for it to be the last day is the best way to live on earth. C.S. Lewis said it like this Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth. And you get neither. So as we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we're coming today to Jesus' statement, teaches us how to do that, how to aim at heaven, how to be great in heaven, and how to go to heaven. And if you're thinking, well, I don't really need to know that today because I'm not going to heaven for a long time, well, not so, right? The news would beg to differ. Tomorrow's promised to no one, but the best way to live today is to live for that day. So here's what Jesus says about how to be great in heaven, continuing the Sermon on the Mount. been walking through this this summer. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we start with the negative. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands teaches others will be least in the kingdom of heaven. This is not about how to be a Christian. It's not about how to go to heaven. Not about how to be saved. You're not saved by keeping the commandments. You're not saved by coming to chapel today. You're not saved by trying to be good. You're saved by the grace of God. We'll get to that in just a minute. You're saved by the love and the mercy and the gift and the forgiveness and the and the grace of God. That's how we're saved. All right? But once you're in heaven, did you know there are rewards in heaven? There are levels. Of rewards in heaven. The Bible talks about a crown of righteousness. It talks about a shepherd's crown. It talks about a crown of rejoicing. There's a place in the book of Revelation where those that are there lay their crowns at the, at the feet of the, of the throne of God. There is reward for obedience in heaven. It's not as though when we're in heaven, nothing we did on earth will be remembered. In fact, everything we do for God on earth will be remembered. You cannot measure the eternal significance of present faithfulness everything we do to serve God, to live in alignment with God's Word, is remembered and rewarded by God's grace in heaven. And so if you want to be least, if you want to get there but be least, if you want to barely get there, if you want to barely get in, if you want to barely make the cut by trusting Christ as your Lord, but really in no way living for Him, if you want to be least in the kingdom of heaven, well then break the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same, Jesus says. However, conversely, Whoever practices and teaches these commandments, Jesus says, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And notice the order. You have to practice to teach. You have to do, to ask others to do. Can't give what you don't have. Can't lead where you won't go. I can ask you to do what I won't do, right? So, if we live by God's Word and then teach others to live by God's Word, there's a reward for that faithfulness, which is eternal. Just by worshiping Him today, just by being faithful to His call to worship today, that has eternal significance. The next sin you refuse has eternal significance. The next act of faithfulness has eternal significance. The next time you're gracious to somebody, the next time you meet a need, the next time you pray for a hurting soul, the next thing you do to practice and teach God's Word has eternal significance. And living that way is the best way to live here. Billy Graham, for example. Billy Graham was, uh, in so many ways, one of the most, as you know, remarkable lives in American history, 61 times on Gallup's most admired list. I'm only 61 years old. He was 61 times. I say only. Well, sometimes it's not only, but nonetheless, 61 years old, 61 times on Gallup's most admired list. He preached, they say, in electronic as well as personal form to more than 9 billion people. Over the years of his ministry, more than three and a half million making personal confessions of faith in Christ. He was a personal mentor to 12 presidents. It was on Larry King Live 24 times, which was a record. One of the times he's on Larry King Live, Larry King asked Billy Graham, what's your greatest fear? And here was his answer. My greatest fear is that I might do something before I die, which would bring dishonor to my Lord. And that's why he didn't. Those that are great in heaven are those who live by and teach others to live by the Word of God. Just that simple. Not the way the world measures success, is it? Our culture, as you know, measures you by how much you own. Well, how much does what you own impress the God who owns the universe? You know? I mean, when you read the book of Revelation, you find out that God thinks so much of gold, he uses it for pavement. Streets of gold, you know, the stuff that we value so much God thinks is concrete. You're walking around on gold in heaven, so to speak. We value jewelry and pearls. God uses pearls as construction material in heaven. How much does my or your popularity or status or significance in this culture impress the God of all creation? What impresses God is living by and teaching others to live by His Word. Just that simple, Jesus says. How to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, the prior question, Jesus comes to next, how do you get there? How can you be sure you will be at that place where you will be rewarded? So that's where Jesus continues, Sermon on the Mount, making this statement, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is pretty scary stuff, all right? Jesus says, I tell you, it's emphatic in the Greek. It's like he's pointing his finger at you. It's like he's pounding a pulpit. He, he's, being, he's being emphatic in the original. I tell you, unless your righteousness goes past, uh, fills up more than uh, ex- exceeds that of the Pharisees, and teachers of the law. Now, we think of these guys as bad guys, right? I mean, the Pharisees were the ones, obviously, that were complicit in the death of Jesus, the Sanhedrin, and all of that. We think of the Pharisees as these hopeless legalists and all that. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the spiritual marines. They were the Green Beret. They were the Navy Seals. They were the the most uh, holy people in the culture. There were never more than 6,000. Pharisee means separated one. So the way they work was like this. You have, these ten Commandments, right? Let's take the commandment about keeping the Sabbath, let's say. What does it mean to keep the Sabbath? What does it mean not to work on the Sabbath? So the Pharisees and others like them developed laws around they called it a hedge, laws around the law. Then they developed laws to interpret those laws. Then they developed teachings to interpret that and teaching to interpret that law to keep from breaking this law. For instance, One example, how far can you walk on the Sabbath before it's work? Well, they decided it was what we would call three-eighths of a mile. So when Pharisees showed up in a town, they put rocks three-eighths of a mile around the town to tell them when they'd gone three-eighths of a mile so they wouldn't break the Sabbath. But then somebody said, well, but wait a minute, I have to come back, so that's six-eighths. So then they decided, well, you can go six-eighths as long as you stay there. But if you go past 3 eight, you can't come back. That's the kind of stuff they were dealing with. These laws, these minutiae of laws, they developed 613 laws ultimately. But then they had commentary on that called Mishnah. Then they had the Gemara commentary on the Mishnah. And they put all that together in the Talmud. And here's what it looks like today. I have a copy of it. That's in my library. That's my copy of the Babylonian Talmud. All 23 volumes of the laws that the Pharisees tried to live by so as not to break laws of God. One example, they had 39 categories of Sabbath laws. Not 39 laws, 39 categories. This volume right there is just Sabbath law. It's called the Shabbat. See that right there? That's how the Hebrews or the Jews today speak of the Sabbath. If you're in Israel on the Sabbath, they'll say Shabbat. They'll say Shalom Shabbat. That volume contains nothing but laws on how to keep the Sabbath. And that's what the Pharisees were trying to live by. And Jesus says, if you want to go to heaven, you've got to be more righteous than that. And you're thinking, what shot do I have, right? And that's the point. When Jesus says, unless you're more righteous than this, what He's calling us to is a righteousness we can't achieve that can't be done in human terms, can only be given by the grace of God. Tragically, Americans don't understand that. Only 2% of Americans are afraid they might go to hell. Americans think, as long as I'm good, I'll go to heaven. I mean, only bad people go to hell, right? I mean, the Hitlers go to hell, but I'm a good person. As long as I'm a good person, believe in God, that's really all that I need to do. When Mother Teresa passed away some years ago, 78% of Americans thought Mother Teresa would be in heaven. But 87% said they would be in heaven because they're deluded into believing, as long as we're good, we're good enough, not according to Jesus. If you're going to try to get there by being good enough, you've got to be better than the Pharisees. The logic is this, God's heaven is perfect. If it's not perfect, a perfect God can't stay there. Your first sin was enough to keep you out, one sin. I remember when I was five years old, I was with my mom. We were at a grocery store checking out, and I stole a pack of gum. I'm so sorry to tell you that now. I should have told you that years ago. I know you're disappointed. Need to find someone else to preach next week. I I know, but yeah, I did. I stole a pack. It didn't taste very good when I chewed it, you know, as it turned out. Maybe there's a parable in there someplace, but yeah, that was enough so that my righteousness could no longer exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Okay? That was enough. Your last little white lie, your last wrong thought was enough that you no longer exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, even though Americans think they can get there by just being good. It's like trying to swim to Hawaii by being a better swimmer than the next guy. Janet and I were in Alaska, and we saw a t-shirt It's really pretty funny, kind of a strange way, where uh, bears are a big thing in Alaska, of course, and the t-shirt has this bear biting this last guy in line with these other guys in front, and the caption says, the way to escape the bears is is to be faster than one person in your group. You know? As long as you're faster than one guy, you're okay, right? Well, that's how Americans look at getting to heaven. Jesus says no. Jesus says if it's a perfect place, you've got to be perfect to go there. One sin corrupts it. It's like when I visit people in the hospital that have been through a bone marrow transplant and there can't be any impurities in the room. So I have to wash my hands and face and have to put on sterile garb and gloves and a mask because if I bring anything into that room, I'll contaminate the room. That's heaven. One sin is enough to contaminate heaven. You can't get there by being good. That's Jesus' point, even though Americans think so. How do you get there? A few years ago, Janet and I were in England and we spent time at the Crown Jewels. They're amazing to look at. But there is not one thing I can possibly do in my life to be able to wear them. I could move to England. I could become an English citizen, British citizen. I could run for parliament. I could get elected prime minister. But I could not win, I could not wear the crown jewels because I wasn't born into the royal family. The only way to wear the royal jewels is to be born into the royal family family, Jesus put it like this, no one can see the kingdom of God until he is born again. When you ask Jesus to forgive your mistakes and be your Lord, when you ask Jesus to forgive your sins and be the Savior of your life, that's when you're born again, and that's when you become the child of God, and that's when you have the righteousness of God that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and that's how you go to heaven. The Bible says this, a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Have you placed your faith in Christ Jesus? If you haven't, no chapel service is enough. No good deed is enough. No believing in God is enough. No giving money is enough. Nothing you can do. If you stole a pack of gum when you were five, you're out. You can't do enough to earn your way there. You can't be a good enough swimmer to swim to Hawaii. It doesn't work. But if you've asked Jesus to forgive your mistakes and be your Lord, you've been born again. Now you can wear the royal jewels. Now you'll be in heaven. And so it comes down to this. If you want to be in heaven and be great in heaven, follow Jesus and help people follow Jesus. It's really that simple. Question is, are you doing that? First of all, have you trusted Christ as your Lord? And if you have, are you following Him and helping others follow Him? How are you doing that? Who would say you're helping them follow Jesus? Who in your life would say they're being drawn to God by you? Who would say that they see Christ in you? Pray about that. Say every day, God, help me to help people follow you. And He will answer your prayer. Say every day, God, help me to be the light in a dark world, and you'll be that light. God, help me to live by your Word and help others live by your Word, and He will help you do that. And you will be not only in heaven, you'll be great in heaven. That's what Jesus says. Close with this. You might have missed this in the news. Happened a few months ago that the pastor of First Baptist Church in Union City, Tennessee, retired. Didn't make the news that I could see. i Did a search just this last week. Couldn't find anything online anywhere about that event, about that retirement. Couldn't even find anything online, photographic evidence of the pastor. Couldn't find a single picture of him anywhere online. Could find only a few articles online that had any reference to his ministry whatsoever. And then, actually in his 80s, uh, had been through, pastored so many churches over the years, and then pastored this church in Tennessee and retired earlier this year. Nearly 50 years earlier, the pastor of this church, Union City First Baptist Church in Tennessee, was pastoring a very large church in Birmingham when a tiny startup church in Houston, Texas became convinced somehow that he should be their pastor. So they went out to Birmingham, they met with him, they talked with him. He was not interested in leaving this very large thriving church in Birmingham, he'd spent his whole life at that point in Alabama, to come to the startup church in Houston. He asked for pictures of their campus, but the campus was so small, they wouldn't even show him pictures. They finally got him to come to Houston to look at the situation. They drove him all over the area. They showed him the nearby college. They showed him the houses that were being built and all of that. And then finally, they showed him the church campus, little tiny campus. This is what the church looks like today, College Park Baptist Church in Houston. But that's after he came and he built that sanctuary there on the right and he built that educational complex there in the middle, way off to the edge. The only picture I could find of it online, way off to the edge is a tiny chapel. That's all that was there when he came in 1973 because he knew God was calling him and his family to come to this tiny little church in Houston. Later that summer, he started a bus ministry. Buying a school bus, knocking on doors, getting people to ride the bus to church. August of 73, they came to this apartment complex in Houston, Texas, and they knocked on my door. And they invited me to church. And that's how I came to faith in Christ. And that pastor, Cecil Sewell by name, his wife led me to Christ. He baptized me, licensed me, ordained me, he did our wedding. Did my father's funeral. Some years later, moved back to Alabama and then to Tennessee and retired. For what he says is the last time we'll see earlier this year. And I will be in heaven because he will be great in heaven. Question, of course, is who will be in heaven because of us? Well, let's pray. Take this moment, you and the Lord, and just say to him, Lord, I want to be great in heaven. Help me. Show me what it means for me to live by your word and help others live by your word. Just ask the Lord that right now. then make the commitment to start every day with that prayer. Lord, today, help me to live by your word and help others live by your word. And if you'll do that day by day, you will be great in heaven and others will be in heaven. And then if you're not certain that you have made that commitment we've talked about today, to ask Jesus to forgive your mistakes and be your Lord, to give you a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, to wear those royal jewels, to be in the family of God. If you're not sure you've done that, I want to urge you to do that today. In fact, we don't do this very often, but I'd like to lead a salvation prayer right now as we're praying. This is not the only way to make a personal commitment to Christ. It's what I did in 1973, and it's what so many others have done, is to pray these words. If you... If you're not sure you've done this, I invite you to pray these words with me in your heart to God. And then afterwards, I would urge you to talk to a Christian about what you've done so they can help you take your next steps in Christ. And if you know you've done that, then pray for somebody here today that maybe hasn't. If you're not sure that you'll be in heaven, if you're not sure that you've trusted Christ, then I invite you to pray these words in your heart with me to God. Dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you that Jesus died to pay for my sins. I turn from them now. I ask you to forgive me for them. I ask you to be the Lord of my life. I ask Jesus to come into my life. I will live for you as long as I live. Thank you for making me the child of God. In Jesus' name, amen. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. And it was just by grace in August of 73 that that church knocked on my door in that apartment complex, de DeVille Apartments, Southwest Houston. Who knew then that I'd, be get, I'd get to be here talking about that with you today? Who knows? In 50 years, almost, who will be talking about Jesus because of you. Well, have a great day and week. God bless.